You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, the 602 Club, and I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to be back. I I feel like we've officially hit summer, especially as we are actually recording on Memorial Day. So thank you to everyone who made the ultimate sacrifice that we could be here doing something so much fun as recording a podcast. The one, the only, Christy Morris. Hello. I don't know if we have to whisper the whole podcast. I mean, I know it's a quiet movie, but maybe we shouldn't whisper. Okay. (laughs) Just wanted to make sure it was safe. (laughs) I think we're safe. Uh, We're about under three feet of concrete right now, Christy. Uh, Uh, And so, yeah, they they have to be right above us for us to hear them. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And I I did borrow just a, you know, a, a hearing aid. So just in case we can put it to the microphone, I think we'll be good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are so excited because uh, Christy and I have been back to the theaters, both of us, and we are going to be diving into A Quiet Place Part 2, which, if you remember, all the way back last year, Christy, we covered A Quiet Place Part 1 because it was about to come out, uh, the second one, and then it got postponed for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Poor John. (laughs) John Krasinski, man. Every filmmaker, really, that had this happen. I mean, it's just, it's terrible, right? But did they have the um, precursor to the movie at your theater where it was John Krasinski saying, thank you for coming back out to the theater? They did, uh, which was really fun uh, to see. So, uh, yeah, that was was great. So we're definitely glad, like John Krasinski, to be back in the theater and super excited to be here with you to talk about this brand new movie. Of course, you know, make sure you find us wherever you get your podcasts. You know, literally any place podcasts be had, you can find the 602 Club. Please subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops. And I would like to ask, you know, if you listen to the show and you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do that. It does help people find the show, and it's still the main place where people are getting podcasts. So we really appreciate uh, star rating and review over there, and we read those out in the show. Uh, you can find us online on Twitter. You can follow us at the 602 Club TFM, uh, which, you know, Christy, we had a really fun little um, contest that was going. Um, and mm-hmm. it was ba- it was super simple. You could win a copy of Shrek in 4K um, if you liked uh, a-, a tweet and followed us, which we we didn't get too many responses. So we have a very short list of people that could win this. It was just pretty exciting. So we're going to announce the winner now. And so looking that up so that we can see who the winner is. And I'm super excited to, to give this away because... I'm excited to rewatch Shrek because I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've seen this. Oh, definitely. Been years for us and is one of our favorite movies of all time. I think the other day I sent my husband a gif of Donkey saying, I'm making waffles. (laughs) Oh, so great. So great. 
So, yeah, I, I'm excited to see who the winner is, too. Sadly, you know, I mean, of course, it won't be one of us, but I'm willing to part with that. <laughs> That's good. I, I, I think all of our <laughs> listeners appreciate that. Now, I can watch it on Hulu now anytime, apparently. So, All right. Well, so excited to uh, give this away to the one and only Alexander Gates, who just started following us and liked the tweet. And so, Alexander... Uh, please, uh, and it's and on Twitter, it's Alexander B. Gates. You are the winner. And so just hit us up on uh, Twitter there at 602 Club and uh, send us a DM and we'll get that uh, sent out to you uh, so that you can enjoy Shrek in 4K uh, and uh, tell us your favorite part. So um, and thank, thank you, you for everybody who, yeah, entered and, and followed us because of that as well. So uh, you could find us on Instagram, too. Please uh, don't forget to follow us over there. And you can do that at the 602 Club TFM. You can also find the entire network online at Trek FM or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And then, of course, you can always go over to Trek.FM and see all of the shows that we're doing here on the network in fact, one of the original shows from the network just hit 10 years old, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, we've been around for a long time. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can go over to trek.fm slash contact. Huge thank you, too. Uh, it is uh, an interesting thing and a, a difficult thing to put this on each and every week. There's so much going on, and it costs a lot. And we don't have advertisements on our show, if you haven't noticed. So... If you like that and you want to keep us ad-free, you can go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm, support us, be part of our team, and make sure that all of this content here on the network keeps coming to you each and every week. Uh, Again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm, and we have some incredible associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, and Daniel Noah. Really appreciate all of them not only supporting the 602 Club, but the entire network. So... Christy mentioned we went back to the theater. So I, if I remember correctly, is this your first time back in the theater? No, actually, I did see one other movie in the theater before this. Um, I don't remember what it was now. It was that good. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, no, this is the second movie I saw back in the theater. But um, like we mentioned, I thought it was really a nice touch that they added that personal scene with john before the movie saying you know it's a an incredible thing to get to be back together in theaters and that he was so thankful for people paying to come and see it Mm -hmm. because you don't ever get that you know i mean it it was before the pandemic such a blockbuster thing people just Mm -hmm. wanted your money and they didn't really care otherwise it's true it's true uh and you know i think everybody is is very well aware now of um you know, just how important theaters are to the experience of a film. And, you know, in all honesty, I think, um, and I I wanted to ask you about this. How did it feel to watch a film again, just with people, especially one where this movie can make you react at so many different points? Well, it's funny because since it was this particular movie, it still felt like there were no other people because we were all so quiet. (laughs) Um, But it was nice to be in a a room with a bunch of people. And I mean, it it wasn't that many. It still was maybe 10 to 15 people total, including us in there. But it felt like there was some camaraderie, even if it was unspoken. Did it feel that way for you? 
No, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I remember seeing the first one in the theater and, you know, uh, it was one of those movies where I was really surprised that I really liked this type of movie in the first place. And um, I went uh, and it was great uh, because of that communal experience. Like everybody's experiencing the jump scares and like the things that are scary happening all the time. You can hear everybody gasping and like, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes cursing out loud, which is really funny. Uh, because it scares somebody so much. And and honestly, you know, it was really fun to be in theater again with a lot of different people. And the theater was relatively full, which was great. Um, and we went with friends as well. So we were sitting in a group together. So, mm-hmm. you know, having everybody kind of jump up at the same time because something happens, you know, is it and it's different than being at home. You know, and everybody, you know, there's because you're all sitting in the same row, you know, you're a little bit closer together because of that and and all of that. So, yeah, it was a really exciting time to be back in the theater to see a movie like this. And I feel like it was the kind of like the perfect movie to bring everybody back. So um, did was it a pretty good experience then for you guys too being back? Oh, yeah. And I think that this is a really good one, too, to see on that huge screen and having good sound quality. It just kind of overwhelms you and really immerses you in the experience right. with this movie. So, yeah. Um, and I meant to tell you with the jump scares, actually, it was so funny. I don't know if you guys noticed because of this particular movie, every time somebody opened um, a bag of candy or took a sip yeah. of their drink <laughs> my husband was eating skittles and i was like shh <laughs> but yeah. uh one of those yeah. jump scares he almost threw skittles everywhere <laughs> that's funny that's funny no it, absolutely i mean i think one of the things i appreciated and i think i probably said this when we talked about the first movie is the fact that people really are and were respectful of this film and the fact that it's quiet and I yes. didn't hear a ton of, again, you know, people still very respectful of that, which is great, you know, because you want that in this film. And so this movie finally kind of gives us the day one of this whole thing happening, you know, like ground zero. And so I just wanted to ask you with the movie starting off like that, how you felt about how all that worked about, you know, learning what happened and kind of this fateful day and the fact that it also kind of introduces us to some people that we'll meet along the way throughout the rest of this film that picks up after and right after the first movie came out. I think it was kind of necessary to start it this way, although at first it threw me off because I thought that they were then making this like a prequel and the entire movie um, for part two would be about prior to um, John Krasinski's character dying. Um but I like that they did still do that flashback sort of way because I think that you need to be reminded of the kind of guy he was and the kind of father he was again. Um, not that we forgot, but just, you know, really putting you back in touch with how he's different from their family friend that then comes back later on. Um, and seeing how everything goes down so quickly to then lead to the way they're living their lives in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that it, it informs a lot more that you needed on the timeline of things and um, doesn't just throw you right into the action. Although I like that mm-hmm. in, in some movies, um, right. I think that you kind of needed to know how it started. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think it was nice to, I mean, I, I feel like the, the, one of the things that this movie does is it helps you um, get a little bit closer to the characters, you know, especially, I think, you know, getting to kind of even know some of the names of the characters. Like, you know, I think uh, in the first movie, legitimately, they were just man and, and woman, you know, like they didn't mm-hmm. have names. We didn't know their names, you know, and so now we know his name is Lee. And I think uh, along the way, and at least I looked it up online and her name is Evelyn, the mom and the dad. And so that was great. Of course, you know, meeting uh, who we'll meet later, uh, Emmett, was important too to just kind of introduce us to him. And I mean, I think, you know, just even seeing what their lives were like, um, you know, I thought, well, one, I have to say, my wife leaned over uh, after that part was over and then there weren't really any other flashbacks, of course. And she's like, there aren't enough flashbacks. And that was AKA, there's not enough John Krasinski in this movie. Um, <laughs> but obviously, I think the biggest part of doing that is that you get him in the movie you know, for at least five minutes and um, kind of, again, like you said, you remind people of who he is as a person um, mm-hmm. so that as and and in all honesty, I think one of the great things about that setup is that it helps people who maybe maybe you haven't seen the first movie in a long time. Maybe you never saw the first movie. This gives you enough of a context um, to be able to come into the the second movie and obviously, you know, you're going to miss things, but you could still watch this movie even if you hadn't seen the sec or the first one. Yeah, I that's still a good think, point. And enjoy it, you know? Yeah, uh, that's a really good point that I didn't think about. This could stand on its own as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, and one of the things I, I kind of came to is that it does also help explain, you know, how... And this was something that wasn't necessarily a theme that I had put down, but I, I thought of, you know, how a weakness can actually be a strength in certain situations. And this mm-hmm. family having to know ASL because of their daughter being deaf actually is a thing that's going to help this family survive better than any other family because mm-hmm. they already know how to be quiet, but also communicate at the same time. So I thought that that was really interesting and just a very small little theme that, that I think seeing day one helped reinforce is that this family was poised for success in survival because they already had a major component of survival needed, which is a way to communicate without having to make noise. Absolutely. And and then, too, you know, it, it ends up being a strength that sh- the daughter that happens to be deaf figures out how to use her hearing aid to hit the right frequency mm-hmm. to disturb the aliens. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think that it, I, I wonder how that kind of morphed into being a strength of the, the plot, because I feel like it had to be just a bunch of guys sitting down talking with John and him coming up with that off the cuff, you know? To mm-hmm. then wrap it in the way it was. Um, but it is beautiful how that becomes such a strength and how the, it all kind of interweaves together to benefit them. And that if you think about it logically, even before they knew that the aliens possibly had supersonic hearing, they knew that when you're trying to hide from something dangerous, you are quiet. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and then they just learned more. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me was, you know, how, you know, when they're hiding uh, in the bar there, you know, he's telling her to be quiet. And it felt like he picked up pretty quickly that this isn't a being who was listening very carefully, you know, uh, and and I think um, the, one of the things about the alien design and just the sounds it makes and everything you you did really, I think, get the picture that this, and, and I think very quickly from the way that they portray it, is that this is an animal that's re- responding to sound. Like this is a being that's responding to sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I appreciated that they made that very evident very quickly, um, uh, even to the characters. Like it made sense that they would figure this out more quickly. But like you said, when you're hiding... You got to make less noise, you know, like that's right. the point of hiding. And so, <laughs> um, you know, putting all that together right there at the beginning, I think it all really helped. Yeah. Well, and, and then it builds it further into the story when they finally have to later on venture out from their home because it's mm-hmm. destroyed and probably because they want to get away from the scene of her husband's death. Um, and the trail of sand ends. Yeah. And they realize they're stepping outside of their safety bubble. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that that was a big moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I will say the only funny thing about kind of going back in time is that, you know, obviously the kids are older, you know, their daughter is already older and looks older. Their son is at least two feet taller um, than he was in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the, the baby <clears throat> that they had, um, that died at the beginning of the first movie also looks, you know, um, larger than who they had before and all. So yeah, the whole thing, like there's some, there's some just narrative cheats that, that you just have to let go of, you know, but I think all in all, I think they did a great job of going ahead and, and giving us the day one so that we could be then prepared for the rest of the movie. And so, Mm -hmm. um, One of the things that really stood out to me about this film, and I felt like it was a very timely movie, is about the question of fear or courage and really juxtaposing those two things between different characters. And I was really impressed by how this movie does such a great job of showing how fear makes people do really dumb and stupid things. And how we kind of see that throughout the entire movie. And that we're really kind of juxtaposing that between their son and then um, some other characters as well. But specifically him, like I was, I was, you know, the first movie did a great job of showing just how scared he is of everything. Mm-hmm. And this movie kind of continued that even before the tragedy happens, you know, with these aliens landing. Like he's afraid of a baseball coming at him at the baseball game, you know, like. He's afraid of everything. He's one of those kids. And, but I thought it was really fascinating because this movie with him, with Emmett, and with the kind of these dangerous, feral people, what we see is that fear makes people do dumb things and react in bad ways. Uh, And I thought that that was a really, really strong theme 
of this film and really well it wasn't one of those things that anybody ever talks about they just show it to you yeah and i'm glad you said that too because i mean we've always said it's far better if you're showing me what you're trying to say rather than explaining it in text or dialogue um and i i do think that's probably the biggest theme in this whole movie i mean if you think about it logically people are always going to have that instinct of fight or flight. There are people that are going to stand up and have the courage, even though they might be afraid to do what needs to be done and to maybe stay positive about the situation or the people that react purely out of fear and run or hide or, you know, never face their fears. Um, And I think that it was really interesting too, that I noticed then toward the end it's the kids that end up having the courage mm-hmm. instead of the adults. Because, I mean, I, I think neither Emmett nor Evelyn could have foreseen the son and the daughter being the ones that mm-hmm. blast the aliens with the sound and shoot them or right. hit them. Yeah, you know, I, I thought one of the things that was fascinating is... Specifically talking about their son, you know, there's the scene where he's so scared because his mom is going to leave. His sister is already left and he's trying to talk both of them out of going to do what they're going to do, which is the reason they're they're leaving safety is because they have to. Otherwise, we're not going to survive like, yeah, you know, uh, and and for the greater good, um, especially their daughter. um played by uh, Millie Simmons, like you're, she's leaving because she's trying to save not only her family, but everyone. And, and as much, you know, because she knows that if she can reach a radio station, she can create a weapon through that radio station to help people in the surrounding area. Everyone who could pick up this radio station can have Mm -hmm. a weapon then to fight these aliens finally. And what I loved about that is this whole idea of that, like, fear paralyzes you and keeps you in one place. It keeps you from being able to benefit anyone, mostly even just yourself, but, of course, anybody else. Um, and, And fear is, in many ways, I think the basest, most selfish response to things because you think you're going to keep yourself safe by doing something. But it also keeps you from being able to see how it will also not benefit you in the long run. Like it's a very short term solution for most of the problems. Mm-hmm. We know, you know, that the son would have more pain because he got his leg caught in a bear trap um, yeah. and without medication um, and a proper wrapping, his leg won't heal and, you know, he could die mm-hmm. um, without, you know, the, the, uh, obviously the oxygen, their baby will die as well um, because mm-hmm. the baby needs the oxygen to be in the soundproofed um, container. They've made it. Um, and so I just, it, it was, it's so well done because like you said, on the other side, then we see people who are courageous like Evelyn and her daughter in the movie, her name is is supposed to be Regan, even though we never have anybody call her that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they do is they 
they show courage, which means pushing past fear and mastering it for a greater good. They don't just sit by and do nothing when the lives of others and themselves are on the line. And I think there's just really something so beautiful about that. And it really is, in the, in the end, Regan who is the one who even gives then her courage, gives her brother courage, right? Because he mm-hmm. only reacts the, when he realizes she's done what she said she was going to do, which he then knows can save them in the situation that they're in. Right. I, it, it's just so well done, so well structured. And I, again, I think it's a... um. It's such a timely message for the world that we have been living in over the past year. Um, And I thought that this was like, I was so glad that this is the first big movie really coming out into the theaters because this one really is speaking to all of us. It's really, Mm -hmm. it's really speaking to all of us. Um, And I, I love it. I love that it's, it's kind of reminding us that Fear can't keep us locked in basements. Otherwise, we all perish, right? Yeah. Um, So it's just very, very, very good. Well, and they show you, too, that you, when you do that, like you said, it's the selfish response, even in the moment, if, if it feels like it's not, you're not helping anyone else. Out of their problems Mm -hmm. by holding up and never leaving where you are. And like you said, there's a time as well where they get to where someone has to go do something because they're running out of supplies. Mm -hmm. And either her son might die from infection or um, both of them could have died in there if no one opened the door and also brought them more oxygen, uh, he and the baby. Um, I mean, there were so many factors that. Mm-hmm. just reacting out of fear wouldn't solve. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what we can see too in that is how, you know, I think specifically how fear makes us forget the most important things, you know, because the son was so fearful in that moment, he forgot the most important thing, which is to make sure that he doesn't get locked inside mm-hmm. the um, boiler. And, because of that, again, he does almost die, you know. Um, be, again, fear, not mastering your fear can lead to death pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And especially in a situation like this. And, and, it, and I think it just shows like, and there's that real beautiful moment where Emmett tells Regan, he says, you know, um, I'm not like your dad. But you are. And that was the beautiful thing. And that, again, that connection of doing the right thing, regardless of the cost, the courage to do what's right. You know, their dad died courageously so his kids could live. Mm -hmm. You know, and and Regan is willing to do whatever it takes to save not only her family, but others as well um, with this, you know, technology, the, the hearing aid next to a microphone, which creates this feedback loop, which drives these things crazy, which allows you then to be able to take them out easily. Right. And so I just, you know, I think it's, it's really beautiful. And, and I think there's something that Emmett says where he says, you know, I don't think you know about who's left, but they're not the people you, they're not the type of people you save because of what they've become. And 
it's interesting to me how before Evelyn makes this impassioned speech to Emmett about how her husband's not there and her daughter's gone and she needs him to go after that her, he basically is kind of like them. Just a little bit lower on the rung of, of like he's not quite as bad, but basically he's turning his back on them saying, no, I can't help you. I, I you know, mm-hmm. um, because again, he's afraid. Um, and when trying to hide his face, mm-hmm. he yeah. didn't even want her to recognize who he was because he didn't want to help her. But I, Which, I like terrible. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's the thing, too. It's like, seriously, you were a family friend. We used to go to our kids baseball games together and you're just mm-hmm. going to turn your back on me like that. So I love that they have him kind of have a change of heart when she opens the box and shows him the baby. Mm-hmm. At least a little bit. Um, but I like too. I wanted to add that he learns how to be more self-sacrificial from Regan. Mm-hmm. And so then when they encounter those, um, you know, people that are really savage that seem like they're going to take her and all of their belongings, mm-hmm. he decides to sacrifice himself to save her. Right. When before. Yeah, Absolutely. Before he wasn't even considering going after her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is really, I think it's really beautiful too because, you know, again, they have that confrontation there in the train station and he's like, I'm going to take you home. And she's like, what home? You know, yeah. like, we have nothing else. And and she's, I love how she challenges him by bringing back what he said about his own wife. You felt like you couldn't do enough. And now you can. Mm-hmm. And so when you were given the when we're given the choice between doing nothing and doing something, it kind of brings back that um, that theme from Wonder Woman. Right. Which is, you know, when Chris Pine is uh, character, Chris, uh, Steve Trevor is talking to Wonder Woman. He's like. Um, you know, my dad always said you can either do something or you can do nothing. And I already tried doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's exactly where we get to in this movie. You've got to keep going. You can't just give up. Uh, and I think that there's, again, I just feel like there's something really, really beautiful to this movie in it. I love it. I absolutely, uh, it just, it really, really spoke to me. This film, and I think, especially uh, this movie coming out in the time it has after we've had these, you know, just in horrible time, um, and that fear can't drive our decision making, uh, right? Because it it leads to bad things, you know. And I think this movie does a great job of showing that. So, um, I was really interested. So. You know, there are plenty of alien movies out there. Um, you know, I think of like signs, you know, where uh, the alien's weakness is water, um, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. In this movie, one of their big weaknesses is not just the hearing aid thing, but they can't swim. And so I just wanted to ask you then about what you thought of this kind of, you know, big weakness for the this, uh, you know, alien species. I thought... It was actually it kind of made a lot of sense if you think about how um, animals in the natural world work, that um, although a bat and a dolphin both hear through echolocation, mm-hmm. 
if a bat tried to swim, right. it would never work. Right. Because their ears are not made for the kind of reverberation that happens underwater. Right. Because we all know when we go swimming as well, like you, you hear completely differently when you're underwater. Mm -hmm. Things are a lot louder. Um, and so I think that that was kind of a natural thing to apply to these aliens, having them have this, you know, like super hearing mm -hmm. and the way that their heads kind of flip yes. um, all over with the vibrations in the air that mm -hmm. being underwater wouldn't jive with that. Yeah, no, I agree with um and also, I think really it created some fascinating thought process for me, which is this means that so many places on Earth could be alien free. I mean, if one of these things doesn't hit Japan, right? Mm -hmm. um, any bridge that connects Japan with any mainland and I don't even know if there are, so you could, this is my ignorance of the country of Japan, but I'm just thinking that or any of the islands in, in you know, anywhere in the world. Like, what's the over, under on, you know, whatever hit it looks like? Well, I got the feeling like these are almost like asteroid fragments. It wasn't like spaceships, you know, because mm -hmm. these aliens don't seem intelligent enough for that. Um, and so it, there's so many places in the world that could be alien free, you know, mm -hmm. a place as big as Australia could be alien free, uh, yeah. you know, New Zealand, you just think of all of these type of places. And so um, it really opened up a, a, a very interesting thought process for me of, of what the world is like and who might be thriving and surviving in this world. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, sorry. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point to have in the movie, especially then showing it in the way that they did, um, mm -hmm. where, you know, everyone's so used to having to survive off of being silent. Yep. And then they're just blown away by, are you people insane? Like you're having a bonfire mm -hmm. and you're laughing and, <laughs> you know, when they come upon them. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I like the reveal of there being an alien in the bottom of a boat. Yeah, you know, that was really interesting, too, because I, I thought, you know, this whole idea, like, they look, they can't swim, but I, the the actions that these, like, kind of, like, dangerous, feral people took are actually the actions to which immediately impact the lives of people worth saving, and it's their fearful lifestyle that lead to quote unquote like innocent people getting hurt because it's their attack on uh Emmett and Regan that allow that boat to be loosed that the alien jumps on and then the tide you know takes to that island right mm -hmm. and so it was fascinating to me to, to kind of tie into that theme of, of the way in which, you know, these, these cowardly actions almost destroyed uh, an entire oasis of normalcy in the world. Um, and that really stuck with me. I was, I was just, and it was, uh, you know, 
I, I wasn't surprised, obviously, when it happened. I, it was pretty obvious what was going to happen the moment you saw the the boat, you know, just like drifting and you're like, no, it's going to land on the island. Mm-hmm. And it did. And so, um, but I thought it was, it was a nice tie-in to what we saw in the film and, and when it came to the theme of fear and courage and, you know, and then of course, you know, it played in with the weakness that these aliens have as well, um, which I thought was, you know, all of that, it just ties in really well. This is a very, like the first movie, I feel like this is a very tight script um, and it's really mm-hmm. well thought out. And part of that is that um, the direction that, that I, I think, and I want to talk about this because I feel like John Krasinski did such a good job with this. In fact, he didn't even really want to do a sequel. Uh, he thought of it as a one-off, and you know, as they were coming back and thinking about it, he thought of, he said, I have this small idea, which was to make Millie Simmons, the daughter, the lead of the, the movie, and her character really opens the door to all the themes that he felt like he was dealing with in the first movie, and then accentuates those. And... I really appreciate that. I think he did a phenomenal job of following up the first movie by by tying everything he was doing in the first movie to the second movie and then just building on top of those in a really smart and um, very fulfilling way to me. And so mm-hmm. I, I really, I mean, I think he's he's batting a thousand when it comes to you know, his, uh, his directorial and, and writing duties on films. Like it's great. Yeah. He blew me away both times. He, I think here that was exactly the way that you needed to go. If you were ever going to do a sequel, I do agree with him uh, initially, you know, a quiet place. The first one really could stand on its own and didn't need a follow up, yep. but he did the perfect way of following up on it. Um, and I think absolutely it should focus on the daughter Regan because of the relationship they developed in the first movie. She's the natural one to then kind of become the leader of the family. Um, you know, because she is so much like her dad and learned so much from him. And then, you know, the two of them discovered Mm -hmm. the whole frequency messing with the aliens heads together. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that she does just absolutely come into her own and develop that courage even more here. Um, And yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's a tight film for a reason because it's so much better being a focused story and being a character study and you don't need to have big set pieces or um, lots of special effects and tons of the aliens because it's not really about the aliens. It's about the people surviving in the midst of all of this and how people respond in a situation with, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of world. You know what, and that's one of the things that I feel like he did a great job of is that obviously the movie is a little bit bigger because they're they're moving out from the farm, mm-hmm. and some of the set pieces are a little bit larger. But I thought all of that was even really well handled. You know, even at, like when they're just running uh, into the steel mill for the first time, you know, and the alien is 
uh, up on the uh, catwalk, you know, upside down. And yes. the way mm-hmm. the camera shot is following them and everything is just really well done. Um, I thought the way he stages the action is great. Um, and yet the movie never lose, like you said, that kind of intimacy that you really want, like the first movie had. Um, and part of that is because it never loses the characters uh, mm-hmm. and uh, for set piece action. Like right. everything is driven by the characters and their need and the necessity of the themes of the story. And, and, and it's all driven by who these characters are and everything that kind of had been built into uh, that first movie. And I, I just absolutely, I think John Krasinski, again, you know, he shows himself to be, I think, a, a very good director here. Um, but I think more importantly, I think he shows himself to be a very good writer here um, yes. who isn't driven by the dictates of Hollywood sensibilities, which is just make it bigger, louder, and bolder. That's not what he does here. He makes sure that this is legitimately something that's needed. And and again, I always kind of go back to this, but it's exactly what they did with the uh, Planet of the Apes films, which is they just made the best movie they could make at that point. And... If there was going to be any follow-up, that was going to come then. But we were just focused on this movie here, and I feel like he's done that here. And obviously, I feel like this movie now could lead into a third movie. But even if there isn't a third movie, it still makes for, I think, a great just duology of films. So, Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think that people respect... Krasinski as well um, for not just going for a cash grab and making 50 sequels. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. That he recognizes a good story when he sees one and that he knows there's a natural conclusion and it's just not necessary. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to dilute what you've made either. No, thank you. No, absolutely. Like, and I think too many people don't think like that, but I think this one is personal enough for John Krasinski that he wouldn't want to, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I like that a lot. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things I did want to ask you about, you know, I know for you, you don't always tend to pay attention uh, to the score as, as much as I do, but I did feel like because this movie has more moments with uh, music in it um, that it was really well done. Uh, so I was interested to see what you thought of uh, Marco Bellatrami is back uh, with the score here. And, and what did you end up thinking of um, his work here with the second film? I actually did take note of it this time. So I'm glad that you brought it up. But I I definitely responded to it. I think that um, they have some really great themes. I I think especially building up to the big jump scares as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, you know, that impending doom that you know is coming and they still get you anyway. Um, So I, I think that definitely, too, with this being the kind of movie it is, you notice the music or the lack of music so much more because 
I've heard people say before, you know, you listen so much harder if someone whispers than if they're yelling. Right. And that's kind of what this movie does to you. Yep. So it's like, you know, you're so focused on the Mm -hmm. quiet moments that then when there is the music and it's beautiful music that you take more Mm -hmm. notice of it. No, I I heartily agree. Um, I I think you're right on target with that. And I think um, one of the things that it really does show uh, with the film is, is obviously how then the sound design with the score are again, so important to this movie and how they continue exactly what they did in the first movie. So well here in the second movie. And I did appreciate that the movie allowed for a little bit more space for there to be a score, but I also thought it was so effective in the moments where they completely pull out all the sound. So you're experiencing the world the way that Regan does, which is soundless. Um, and except for the kind of like when there might be vibrations, obviously she would feel, feel, you kind of get that feeling, but the sound design is just so well done and it's so important to a, the, the film franchise. Now we can call it a franchise because it has two films. Mm-hmm. Sound is so important to this movie, a quiet place and, and how they've continued that I think is, is really been smart. So I, they should be very proud of themselves, I think, with um, not only the score, but the sound design for the film as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, too, if you even think about it, when you're I'm so glad you mentioned that as well of the um, complete cut of any sound to make you understand how it must feel to be deaf. I imagine then with that and the inclusion of so much ASL in this movie. Mm hmm that a lot more viewers may go see it that happen to be deaf because they, you know, wouldn't have to do so much lip reading, (laughs) you know, I like how too, they play into that with um, Regan and Emmett's character where he forgets again that she's deaf and it's just the two of them. And he has to figure out some way to communicate with her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, I something that really I thought was beautiful was the way in which, um, they portrayed, you know, the, um, evolution of her character. Obviously, you know, the fact that she can read lips as, as long as you as a character, a person speaking to her are facing her and are enunciating mm-hmm. what you're saying, she's able to, to do that. Um, also, the way in which she's at, she's learned to, you know, as, as many that are deaf have and do learn as how to be able to speak themselves, uh, even though they can't hear. Um, right. And, and so I just, again, you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's so beautiful, you know, having somebody who is, you know, Millie is, is actually deaf be in this movie and it makes it so much more real than somebody pretending to do that. Yeah. You know, it is just natural for her. And I thought that that was really beautiful as well. So no, a hundred percent. I think, um, it's just, it's, it's really well done. Um, and you know, if there was, if there's anything I could knock the movie on is that obviously this is supposed to be a direct follow-up and yet the kids obviously look two or three years older 
Um, and part of that is you can't really help that, you know, uh, right Their Their son is legitimately probably two feet taller or maybe three at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's crazy how much taller he looks and, and how much older he looks. But that's just what happens when you're working with, um, you know, child actors and it can't be helped. So, you know, that's one of those contrivances, uh, narrative contrivances of this is just following up what originally, you know, we saw last time that I can completely let go of. So, yeah, I'm glad you said that, though, because there was one other thing, too, that um, my husband and I noticed, which was when uh, they are Emmett is talking to them about the song that she hears on the radio. Um, or sorry, not that she hears, but her brother hears and tells mm-hmm. them um, that whole conversation of, no, that song's been on the radio forever. It doesn't mean anything. And Reagan saying, no, my dad listened to the radio every day. He would have heard it. That got confusing for me. I don't know about you. Well, um, and I thought that the first time that I saw it, um, but then uh, they do make a great um great point in that that Emmett and his wife hadn't been living there that whole time they had been living down closer to where uh the the family had been in a house in their house they'd only moved up there about four months earlier before um the uh you know Evelyn and her family have to leave the farm because of what happened happened and he said the reason they heard it because is they're basically on the mountaintop um, and that in the valley you couldn't hear the radio station, um, but you can up higher where they were. Okay. So that I you're absolutely right. But and it was something I had to I, I honestly think I had to see it the second time to kind of pick that up because I was kind of so enraptured with everything else that was happening. Mm hmm. But that was a question that they did actually answer in the f- the film, which was I'm glad that they did. Otherwise, you're absolutely right; it would have been a very strange thing. So, yeah, just trying to explain that thoroughly mm-hmm. enough at first yes. viewing, it it was confusing. Yeah, hundred percent. So, well, I am super excited um, to see you know then what you would rate. A Quiet Place Part 2. So, I don't remember what I rated the first Quiet Place, but I'm pretty sure it was the same as this one, and it would be a 5 out of 5. Because, I mean, other than that one tiny thing, I can't find any fault in it. Mm -hmm. It's so well put together and succinct, but full of plot and... I think that, you know, absolutely the biggest thing here is that they focus on characters and how those characters relate with one another. And then that the sound, which is usually in a standard movie, not as noticeable here is the focus of the entire movie. Mm -hmm. It was such an out of the box idea to have a movie that's not just a monster movie, but about having to be silent in order to mm-hmm. save lives. Um, it just hasn't been done before. And then he did it so well again. So yeah, I, I, I love this. The jump scares got me so bad and my husband, and it was so funny. Um, I would watch it again and again. So yeah. 
you know, I I went back and I I, I kind of had to do um, the same thing that you were thinking. Like, what did I rate um, the original? And I had a, rated the original four and a half out of five stars. And I realized there's no reason for this to not be a five star film. It just is the the first one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for me, um, as we've been talking about this movie specifically, and um, I, I, I'm i going to have to go up to four and a half uh, out, of, out of five stars for this one. It's not quite as good as the first one, but that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and it's not like this is a worse movie in any way, shape or form. I just think the first one is just closer is perfection. And this one isn't quite that. And I can't necessarily pinpoint why that's the case. Um, maybe I'll, and and put it this way. I feel like this movie could go to a five star. I just feel like it's really well done. Um, Mm -hmm. and I like it a lot. And I was impressed by all the thematic elements that came out of it. And just, I just really, it's great. I highly encourage anybody to go see it. Um, I think um, you absolutely should go see it. Um, I think you should go see it in a theater with friends. Um, and you won't be sorry you did because it's it's phenomenal. So it really is. Uh, I think it deserves uh, the five and a half star rating for sure and possibly five. So um, can't wait to see what people think of this one, Christy. But, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, now that we've talked about the film, it's time for some recommendations. I have a really cool one this week that I'm excited about. So uh, I watched another documentary. Apparently, I can't get enough of those these days. Uh, Maybe I'll find something else. (laughs) But uh, I watched um, The Orange Years, the Nickelodeon story on Hulu. And it's really cool because it's all of the things that, you didn't know were going on behind the scenes to create what became that phenomenon that we know of as like the prime time Mm -hmm. of Nickelodeon. Um, Even though it technically started as a channel um, in 1977, apparently um, it really blossomed in the early nineties. You know, that's what uh, especially my age group knows of as their favorite years of, you know, when mm-hmm. all that was on and Keenan and Kel and salute your shorts. Um, and then the, the animation that really took off like Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats. Um, it just absolutely, like I said, blossomed um, during that time. And, and so I loved this documentary because it shows how all of that began and was kind of the perfect storm of, a group of people that were really excited to be working on something and had a lot of really interesting ideas and it all came together. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend watching the orange years, the story of Nickelodeon on Hulu. Nice. Very cool. Well, uh, for everybody, I, uh, started a very long book series. Um, I dove into, uh, the first book of a wheel of time, the wheel of time. Uh, mm-hmm. by Robert Jordan. It is a 14-book fantasy series, so it's a big commitment. But I read the first one, and I have to say that uh, I really did enjoy it. Um, the The first book is called The Eye of the World. And 
I I was drawn in. You know, um, I've kind of been, I would say, looking for a good fantasy series. You know, I, I who knows if Game of Thrones will ever get finished. <laughs> um, and so, and this is a series that's really interesting too because um, Robert Jordan did die before he ever got to finish the series, and then another author named. Brandon Sanderson, who's a good fantasy author in and of his own right, uh, came in and finished the series off of his notes. Uh, and Brandon Sanderson is also famous for having worked with Kevin J. Anderson uh, in finishing the last two books of the Dune series, to which Hebert had had notes on, and they came in together and finished that. So he is... Uh, somebody who's done this before, uh, and so I am interested then to to read through the series. I don't know how long it'll take me, but the first book was good enough for me to recommend, so that's what I'm going to recommend this week. Uh, but Christy, if if people want to catch up with you and uh, talk about their thoughts on A Quiet Place and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And of course, on the Babel Conference as well on Facebook. And when I'm not here, I also do a show called Sabers and Spells with my friends Amanda and Teresa, where we talk about some geek stuff usually that we don't get to talk about. So um, we're actually doing a, an episode on our Marvel fandom just how we got into it. Um, and then we'll possibly be getting into never ending story. Um, maybe I'll get to finally talk about how I get into watching Joss Whedon's material. Um, so yeah, all kinds of things. So I hope you'll go find us as well everywhere on social media at Sabres and Spells. Nice. Uh, of course, uh, you could find me all over social media. Search uh, for the name Matt Rushing 2 on all the platforms. So you can find me there. So definitely hope you'll follow me. Uh, and then, of course, you can find me here on the network, not only doing the 602 Club, but in the same feed. John and I just finished Snyder Cuts uh, as of right now. Uh, you know, we've gotten through everything he's uh, directed now that Army of the Dead is out. So that is out. Uh, and we'll have a new show that we just announced um, be dropping in the fall called Assembling Avengers, where we're going to walk through every single Marvel film and kind of... Now that the hype has ended for those films, you know, and we're kind of away from that, go back and, and talk through all of those movies together and, and see uh, what we think of them now. Um, nice. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. You can also find me here elsewhere on the network doing Literary Treks and The Orb. Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek and The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then on the Nerd Party Network, you can find me doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. We're talking about Star Wars, which is a blast. So if you love Star Wars, that's really the show. I highly encourage you to listen to. It's so much fun. And then I have finished Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. And we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us.